I strongly came to think early on that politics is not the salvation of the human race, which I think is a big problem about leftism. They think if only everyone had the right politics, they'd all be happy. And that's just a false description of what politics is. Hello and welcome to Confessions. This is the podcast where we talk to well interesting, well-known people, clever people, and try and work out what it is that they're on about and where their core beliefs come from and all that sort of thing. And uh, I'm delighted to welcome Charles Moore, former editor of The Telegraph and, of course, um, Mrs Thatcher's authorised biographer. We've already got lots to talk about there. <laughs> well, thank you. Should I be in confession? Should I say, um, bless me, Father, for I've sinned? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, let's work out what those are. <laughs> Charles, can we start by just, if you paint me a picture of your sort of family background and where you come from and the sorts of values that were floating around in the ether uh, when you were a kid? Yes, I brought up on a farm in Sussex. My family were all liberals with a big L, traditional Asquithian liberals. All right. And background of Anglicanism. And I suppose, though it sounds much more hostile than I... I don't intend it to be hostile, but I suppose that I rejected both of those things um, and became more Tory and eventually became a Catholic. But I wouldn't wouldn't want to give the impression that... Um, I'm sure there's an element of teenage revolt in this, of course, and contrarianism, but it wasn't that I was angry about anything um, in the upbringing, which I um, enjoyed very much. And... Um, Though we were out in the country, my parents are quite sort of intellectual and certainly very bookish. What did, what did they do? They were both active in liberal things. My father began as a journalist, but most of his life he worked for the Liberal Party in different ways um, and was a very frequently unsuccessful liberal candidate in okay. many elections, as almost all liberals were then. And he, um, and it seemed to be again now, and he um, ended up being the chief political civil servant for the liberals at the European Parliament. Okay. A- across, not, not just British liberals, but across the community. So my background was rural, but I went from the age of 12, I went away to boarding school right. and then to Cambridge. And that was a that was a happy experience? Yes, yes, it was. Um, I went to Eton and then I went to Cambridge and I loved them both. A bit, a bit uneasy at Eton to start with, but um, if you are quite intellectual, maybe it sounds a bit grand, but let's say you have intellectual interests, um, both those institutions... Trinity College, in my case at Cambridge, were very satisfying. You you had lots to, lots of interesting people to talk to, lots to think about. And was Chapel a part of uh, Eton? Was that still a part of? Were you still an Anglican at that point? Yes, I was. Yeah, yes, um, and I always was a practicing Anglican. So I got confirmed when I was thirteen, which is slightly young to get confirmed in the Church of England, and um, was always very interested. Yes. So, Cambridge. What did you do at Cambridge? Uh, I read. Uh, well, what did I do? Well, um, that's a slightly different question. But I, I, I read. <laughs> that wasn't the question. I was trying to get you to confess. <laughs> uh, I, I read English, and then in the under Cambridge system, you can change for part two. And then I read history. And what I was trying really to do in both cases was, as well as studying English and history, was find a way of doing philosophy, which was not technical, which was uh, which Cambridge philosophy was very technical, um, was more historical. So, what did great thinkers think? Sort of, if you like that basic introduction I was looking forward to whoever um, and all that I enjoyed a lot um, and I enjoyed the English really just not so much for writing essays but just for as it were being paid because one was paid in those days by council grants to uh, read to read books that are worth Trinity reading. Trinity College had a reputation for having some quite well-known and 
important chaplains. Uh, yes, well, when I was um, when I was there, the dean of chapel was Honest to God Robinson, as yeah. he was known, who wrote that famous, once incredibly famous, now forgotten book about sort of radical liberal Christianity. But the funny thing was, as is often the case with Anglicans, John Robinson was a classic Anglican figure um, with a sort of booming public school voice and a um, and a sort of old, actually old-fashioned way in which he automatically assumed, I think it's now called a sense of entitlement, um, the that somehow Church of England clergy are entitled to um, old forth about great issues, um, which he did very well. But it amuses me that he was seen as a radical. He seemed to be not radical at all in uh, in the way his way of thinking. He seemed to be absolutely characteristic of the high ups in the Church of England. But you've become you're a high up who has opinions. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not a clergyman. I would deny I'm a high up there actually because I'm a journalist. Oh, d- does that does that make you class? Yes, below or? below the salt definitely, which is is a good place to be. I think when trying to have ideas. Okay. I'm not sure I believe that. <laughs> what, you don't believe that one should be below the salt? Or no, you don't no, believe I definitely I do. I just, I just think one can't sort of escape one's sort of um, class embeddedness. When... No, but um, but I think it makes a lot of difference what you actually do and, and in your occupation. And journalism is a gadfly thing. It's it, And it's, in that sense, it's... Uh, almost has to be irresponsible. When people say frightfully irresponsible journalism, um, <laughs> you sort of the answer sort of is well, what do you expect? I mean, <laughs> you like sort of like might say, well, that horse in your race is frightfully fast. I mean, <laughs> it's the um, defining yeah, characteristic yeah, yes. of good journalism yeah, yeah, to yeah. be a pain in the arse, really, yeah, as well. Certainly, of, of the more comment side. I mean, in news, even in news, it's true. I think because what you're trying to do is find out something which possibly people don't want you to find out. And did you always want to be a journalist? Is that part of what's... Uh... Uh, no, no, not particularly. I mean, I, but I was, always intri- I was always in that sort of game that's to do with words and ideas and argument and books and thinking. And so it wasn't surprising to me that I became a journalist, but I didn't intend it. And my time at Cambridge, which I'm glad about, was very unfocused on the next thing. I don't like it now uh, when people are encouraged to work out what they're going to do even before they've arrived... And there's a very good essay by Michael Oakeshott called um, The Gift of an Interval, which is about what's good about being at university. And the title discloses the point, which is that you have a, a blessed brief period in your life when you're not looking forward or backward. You're just, you've got this interval. I'm trying to explain this to my children, actually. Yeah. And they're always saying, so I've got to do something at university that's going to yeah. sort of, you know, that, yeah. that's 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 perfectly aimed at getting yeah. a specific sort of job. Yeah. And I'm just trying to disabuse them quite of this. Quite right, quite right. And... I mean, we still, despite all the difficulties, live in a world where people who are well-educated will get jobs, usually. And um, I just put... I think it's very good just to put all that on one side and um, and have this wonderful luxury of thinking in a sort of, sort of unfocused or at least non-utilitarian way about whatever it is you might want to think about. And the only problem is that you're very young when you do it, so you're, some of your thoughts are particularly idiotic. But the, but the point... Uh, is a really important one. I remember in my last year at Trinity, somebody said, um, you probably need a CV. And I, d- I remember not knowing what that meant. Very good. So that's fourth year. <laughs> and now you'd know that when you were 16, wouldn't yeah, you? Yeah, you would, you would, you would. Yeah. You would. So when did the sort of like now? What I'm trying to paint a picture of now is that is that the the sort of liberal Charles Moore. Mm-hmm. Uh, how does the liberal Charles Moore become the Tory Charles Moore? My father, who died this year, was very very history oriented person. 
so fond of history that he found um, the modern world quite difficult in a way. And I think I inherited that. So I always had a desire to look at things historically. And on the whole, I think if you do that, it would incline you to a small c conservative view of things because what you get interested in is the variety of human experience and how it develops and changes and how you learn from that. So it tends to make you less inclined to believe in utopias and um, revolutionary transformations. Um, so the Tory was already there waiting to express itself. I think so. I was sort itself. of there in my father in a way, but perhaps I picked this up, this bit up for myself, that I strongly came to think early on that politics is not the salvation of the human race, which I think is a big problem about leftism. They think if only everyone had the right politics, they'd all be happy. And that's just a false description of what politics is. Politics is a sort of way of trying to reconcile the irreconcilable and getting on with things, and um, it, it doesn't bring salvation. It can be a lot lot better or a lot, lot worse, but that that's what it is. And, um, and that is a sort of, at least it's a sceptical position, which means that it's more inclined to be conservative. So, OK, let's cut to the chase. This is what I really want to talk about with you. <laughs> Two things. One is the God thing, which we'll leave for a second, what you've just, you've just brought up. But Mrs Thatcher. So Mrs Thatcher has always struck me, and I'm sure you're going to deny this, but Thatcher has always struck me as much more of a liberal than a conservative, mm. uh, insofar as she was a revolutionary and uh, she wasn't conserving or didn't seem to be conserving terribly much. This is a great era of great change this is uh you know the her embrace of the market in the way that she did was in that sort of hayakian type of tradition was not a sort of keep everything as it is or uh some sense of um of the past being uh, a sort of repository for mm resources, you know, mm. things that are terribly important. This was a revolutionary movement. It's much more Gladstonian than um, Tory. Well, I, I, I think you're right to say that in some ways it was revolutionary, but I I think she was very interested in the past, though, though her knowledge of the past was essentially romantic rather than accurate. So I think what she saw all this as was a restoration, not a revolution. You might require a revolution to get the restoration, but what you're trying to do is restore. And what I think she was trying to restore comes into the category that was sometimes referred to as Victorian values. And I think is an idea that she had about a Christian social order of an English kind. Um, and probably in the 19th century, that would have been expressed through liberalism, particularly as she was um, from uh, a Methodist background and was brought up as an active Methodist. Her father was a Methodist lay preacher. So uh, that would mean that she didn't have the sort of automatic Anglican establishment in both senses of the word view. Um, and in that sense, she was sort of kicking against the pricks and not being, uh, uh, was being as the phrase used to be, it actually was the phrase always used about Methodists and as nonconformist. But I think that quite readily became conservative with a big C in the 20th century or, or Tory um, because of the collapse of the Liberal Party and the rise of the Labour Party. Uh, and so a lot of Liberals went over to voting Conservative. And I think she very much saw herself as opposing socialism. And one of the reasons she opposed socialism was she thought that ultimately it was un-British 
obviously she recognised a lot of nice, patriotic, decent people were socialists, but fundamentally here's a universal doctrine of equality rather than something arising out of our own cultural experience. And she believed in a sort of greatness of Britain, um, which had liberal and conservative elements, but in the in the modern 20th, 20th century, late 20th century idiom, fitted much better with conservatism than with any other uh, so, doctrine on, around, or not doctrine exactly, but sort of practice. So also things like respectability is so important in her way of thinking about the world. Um, you know, people who work hard and do well and try to look after their community because they're sort of giving back they they've done well and they wish to give it back and those all those sort of concepts are very important to her and i think you find them securely in an english i would tend to say english more than british tradition um so the hayek stuff was a sort of battery ram to get back to samuel samiles and... <laughs> well yeah not exactly not, not i mean not get back to any thinker because i don't think she, okay. she she admired thinkers but she didn't she wasn't a disciple of any thinker she what she did with ideas, she wasn't an intellectual. She weaponized ideas, to use a modern expression. Um, and that's what she got out of Hayek, was um, the need for us to be freer because we were threatened by socialist dictatorship. Um, and the way we could be freer because the dictatorship took more economic than directly political forms in her youth uh, was to have much freer markets and stop having our politics decided by trade union leaders and that sort of thing. But the sort of the sort of people that you might these days associate with eighties, nineties freer markets, there's a sort of spivishness <laughs> about the values of the City of London traders and that benefited so much from her I suppose one might even pull, pull her son into this well, yeah, sort of thing. A, there is a, there is a sort of paradox here which I I think afflicts everybody who has a set of beliefs and then then time goes on and they develop in different ways or people react in different ways to them. And Peregrine Wurstall once put this rather well when he said Mrs. Thatcher uh, wanted a, a country made in the image of her father and created one made in the image of her son, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, which um, is unfair, but is, has a point to it. Uh, but I think she herself was a high-minded person, um, both in a sort of um, general sense about values and morality and so on, and in a specific Christian sense, um, which she cared about a lot, though she wasn't at all theological. Um, and so what she tr was trying to create was not only a richer society, but a better society, uh, because it's a freer society. And she herself felt that some people hadn't responded as she'd hoped to that challenge in which, for example, if you have more money, you must do more good with it. Um, you know, that's a, that's a very obvious point, but she would sometimes complain about that. So the get-rich-quick, you know, money, money, money type of uh, sort of inheritance yeah. that we associate with her son yes. is something that would have been a failure to her. Yes, and she would sometimes specifically say that. But I think um, the defence of all this would be that actually it is much more lasting. So the entrepreneurial spirit, which really was pretty well crushed in the 1970s, is very strong in Britain today. I mean, I, I went to university in the in, in Newcastle in the north when mm. the miners' strike was going on, yeah. and I was a pretty hard lefty yeah. at that time. And for me, there was something about the way this revolution. I, I, I'm trying to do. I'm trying to use this without value laden language because mm. mm. I feel so strongly about it still. Mm. And mm. but something about the way in which the communities of the north, many of the communities of the north, were sort of decimated, picked mm. apart by this revolution. Many of them haven't recovered from that, you know. Uh, th that, for me, is the thing that 
I mean, I I know people say that there's no such thing as society is taken out of context and yep. all of that. I'm sure you'll fill me in on that. But it does feel like that sort of sense of all in it together, that that sense of one nation, yep. was 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 destroyed by this revolution. Well, I I I don't agree with that. Um, partly because of what happened before. This was not a battle, the, the 84 to 85 minor strike, between um, a virtuous working class and um, horrible sort of ownership class. It was a battle between the most extreme trade union leader we've ever had and the elected prime minister. Um, and the miners who went on strike, um, and remember that a third of them never did, were the victims of Arthur Scargill, not a Margaret Thatcher. And in a funny way, she had no choice but to fight the strike because of all the strikes that had happened before. It had brought down, the minor strike had brought down the Heath government in February 1974. And once Scargill became leader, because at, at that time the miners were much more moderately led, um, once he became leader, he was trying to bring down the government. He explicitly said so. And it was simply wrong that um, he'd be allowed to. It was undemocratic um, and of no benefit, economic, political, spiritual, anything to anybody. And um, when she knew the confrontation was coming, which she did because in 1981, which is now forgotten, she gave in to the strikers, to the potential strikers because she wasn't ready. She got ready and she got set. So she got coal stocks ready. She got the trade union laws in place and she prepared for police coordination. And she didn't seek the war, but she wanted to be ready for the war, and she was. And once the war began, she had to win it. And I really don't think there's, in a funny way, much more to be said about that. She was very concerned about the communities, and I discovered a lot um, writing the book um, about how much she tried to do for the working miners, um, and who were, at, at minimum, a third, and as their numbers grew over time, starting in Nottinghamshire and spreading. And she had lots of personal contact and meetings with wives of the working miners, for example, because she was worried about their intimidation found a touching thing in which she wrote a letter to a wife of a working miner whose marriage was in difficulty, saying, your husband's a wonderful man, um, please stick through him in these difficult times. And she was so thoughtful about the danger here that she made sure, which I don't think any other prime minister would have thought of, that the envelope which sends her letter to the didn't have 10 Downing Street on it because her windows would have been broken. Been trouble, and, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so as a sort of strong personal emotional engagement, we're trying to not only to win, but to consider the the victims of this, but it was really, it was a bit of a win or lose situation. And I think your point about, did it break up something? It did, but that thing was breaking anyway. Um, because the utter failure of old heavy industry, because of nationalisation, trade unionism, etc., to compete in the modern world meant that already by the 1970s, arguably by the 1960s, most of these industries had had it. Um, they, they, they were losing terrific amount of money and they were actually stopping... British working people from getting rich. So what we call now called globalisation, I guess. Yes, and um, and particular problems in Britain because of the, as the name suggests, the Labour Party being so closely associated with trade union power specifically, and so the the, the vanguard of the workers was in fact the rearguard of the workers. It was slowing the emancipation of the workers, and it's a very important point in understanding Margaret Thatcher that she appealed to a lot of workers. She got a lot of Labour votes because she got upper working class, lower middle class people who were totally fed up with trade union power and with not being able to start their own small businesses, not being able to own a house, 
council house sales, etc. Um, so there are certainly victims of all of this, but there was an emancipation, and she was very really working for the emancipation. So I suppose I'm about, about to give you an opportunity to give people like me a bit of a kicking, actually. Yeah, <laughs> because um, even as I drift, and there'll be... I sort of feel there's quite a few people like me. Even as I drift further right, as I uh, get into my 50s, um, Mrs Thatcher is still that one figure that Hmm. sticks out as a very particular sort of thing that I find I can't get over. So why is it, do you think, that... Uh, Well, could it be because she's a woman? Oh, these, I knew I knew um, I was giving you opportunities and, to give you a kicking. Uh, <laughs> and um, I think people Do you have think a, that was it? That well, really? I certainly think it's part of it. Because I think um, people have a very visceral feelings about... Certainly did then. I think even now do. You can see the sort of particular abuse that women in power get. Um, which is that somehow women are not... It's not right that they be in power. And if they are in power, they're on on sufferance. And they have to show that they're sort of super nice... Um, otherwise they're exceptionally nasty um, some of this is a sort of right wing dislike of women leaving the kitchen sink and some of it is a sort of feminist feeling about women's solidarity about men so for example when Mrs Thatcher died Glenda Jackson in the House of Commons said she's not a woman in my book um, uh, because she didn't show in Glenda Jackson's view, solidarity with the people you're supposed to show solidarity with. So she attacked her actual sex in order to express her hatred of her. I think that's really quite important in the way people saw that. And um, and Mrs Thatcher... I sort of take that on the chin, but I feel that doesn't name it quite. I mean, well, I'm ready for it well, to be named. I that, really am, but I don't that, feel that... that... That's, that's a, certainly, I think, a big part of it. But the other thing was that a lot of conservative in, in Brit- conservatism, or particularly the Conservative Party in Britain, has advanced by with an apologetic stance. So there's a sort of um, yes, socialism is morally a better idea than conservatism, but it doesn't work, and conservatism is more practical. She said no, socialism is wrong. It's not that it's good, but it doesn't work. It's wrong, and and it doesn't work. Um, and this, what we're doing, is writer. And what, what was wrong about it? Um, that it prevents human liberty. And um, it means that in the name of the people, people other than the people control the people. And, um, and that it's often a cynical operation, and it's certainly a repressive one. And, of course, she saw this very much in Cold War terms, too. So, you see, it fascinates me when I go to Poland, which I did recently, to Gdansk, where the solidarity movement took off, Lech Wałęsa and everything, that there she's the hero of the workers because they were actually up against a socialist state. And she's by far the greatest Western hero in Gdansk, um, even today, um, because they were actual workers fighting actual uh, tyrants who were communists. And um, they behaved in a very sort of socialistic manner in a way. They were very egalitarian. Um, Of course, they had a big Catholic element, but it was a sort of basically quite a left-wing Catholic element um, in in social policy terms. But they were denied the freedom of workers to organise and um, uh, uh, develop their liberties and opportunities. And they, when she came to see them in 1988, when, of course, all the central communist Polish media cut off all coverage when she reached the city of Gdansk, all the tellies turned off. And so they deliberately didn't film these thousands and thousands of people throwing flowers and cheering and all the rest of it. They saw 
that she was speaking to them and she was the, she and Reagan were the first Western leaders to treat Cold War politics as a matter for the peoples of the countries under communism as well as interstate relations. So they actually explicitly reached out to Poles and Czechs and Russians and Hungarians and so on and said, we care about you and your situation and what you can't have and we want you to have the freedoms we have. So they're, unlike most conservatives, particularly most British conservatives, they're sort of quite evangelical. Yes, yes, yes. Um, and... That was the preacher side of the character, the Methodist, the the need to, as her father was always telling her, dare to be a Daniel, which often in British tradition wasn't conservative. It tended to be associated more with liberal or left-wing things. But she interpreted it in a conservative manner while retaining that missionary zeal. A lot of people don't like missionary zeal, and you can see why, because it can be self-righteous. And But I think it was um, very understandable in this context and coherent and uh, serious. And how did this butt up against... Um, so you became a Catholic, and there's Catholic social teaching. It's, it doesn't seem to be to be entirely at one with that view of freedom. It has a sort of idea of the human being as embedded within yeah. a sort of network of relations, almost as if the sort of we precedes the I. Um, yes. Now, that doesn't sound particularly Thatcherite. It isn't, it isn't the same, but you did say I would... We'd, we'd, you did raise the no such thing as society and um, and that I would... You predicted that I would try to explain that and I think it is important because what this was, when she said there's no such thing as society, it's part of a long and surprisingly deep interview with Woman's Own. One of the interesting characteristics about Mrs Thatcher is she would give profoundly serious interviews to um, sort of ordinary workaday publications. She does say there's no such thing as society, but what she's saying, if she was a modern person, she'd put quote marks with her fingers around the word society. She'd say, no such thing as society. Yeah, okay. um, because what she's doing, rather like the scientist that she is, is trying to analyse what we mean by that word. And she says there are individual people and their families, and it's our responsibility, I'm not quoting this precisely accurately, society is the combination of our responsible actions. So what she's trying to get it down is to its roots which is what everybody owes to everybody else. Um, and it actually, it's a call to arms for social action, not a rejection of social action. Uh, it, really is, it really is that. That's what she believed. She believed that if people were liberated and could behave more individualistically, they would understand with their rights, they would understand their responsibilities, and they would have the incentive um, to care about one another more effectively, instead of shuffling off the responsibility as she saw it to the state. Because she saw the state, particularly in its welfare state form, as a way of um, actually treating quite badly and making citizens feel that they didn't didn't have to worry too much about um, poor people because sort of someone else, you know, the social would deal with it or whatever. Um, and um, that's... One might be able to argue that she didn't always make these ideas... Um, they didn't succeed in policy terms um, sometimes and they weren't always fully developed and so on, but they that's what they were. They were not ideas. So about... the more individual you become, the more free you are from the state, the more responsible you'd be rather than the more selfish you'll be. That's yes, what she yes because she didn't... A libertarian would simply believe that freedom of choice is a virtue in itself. She didn't think that. She thought of freedom of choice like what happened in the Garden of Eden. You learnt, you took the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And it was extremely important because that was now your predicament in the world. 
that you distinguished that having known, known good and evil, you went for good and you didn't go for evil. So it's a profound... That's not the story of the, of the fall, though, is it? Well, <laughs> I mean, well, what I'm saying is she didn't really have a very well-developed doctrine of original sin, if that's no, the case. No, you're right. She, 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 but I think you'll find it in Milton, actually, is that a lot of, in Paradise Lost, is that a lot of this is about choice. I mean, she's quite like Milton in some ways. Of course, the theology of... She wouldn't have been very... I mean, she would have made basically the theology of original sin, but she's not a theologian. But I think what she, th- she thought was um, the human predicament is, is, the, is to choose. And this is a noble thing, but it's obviously a very, very dangerous thing. And so, A, you must choose, and B, you must choose right. And therefore, every hour that you... Because, again, a very Protestant thing, that every hour God has given you, every minute must be appropriately used... Um, you must try as hard as you possibly can to do the right thing and to th- think in the right way about how to do it. That's part of her seriousness all the time. A servant with this clause makes drudgery, drudgery divine. divine. Yes, yes. That sort of idea, isn't it? Yes. And she did, um, to pursue him, sweep the room as for thy laws, or so she was trying to do anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, a lot of sweeping went on. <laughs> <laughs> We could argue about that for quite a long time, I think. But mm. so, what I quite like to do is rewind a little bit mm. from and talk about you and talk about sure. the church because this is an this is is an appropriate time. So, Mrs. Thatcher, I don't know what her views about the Roman Catholic Church were, but uh, she, she, Mrs. Thatcher, had great respect uh, for the Roman Catholic Church, but not the slightest temptation to be a Catholic. I um, I went to, with her to see the Pope, actually Pope Benedict. By this time, she was. Um, her mind was in decline, but she had a very good way of continuing to perform. I said, "Wasn't it? Um, isn't it exciting? We're going to see the Pope." And she said, "Yes, but what does one say to a Pope?" Which I think is a good question. I, I really don't know what one says to a Pope, but, mm. but um, she was. What did she say? Almost nothing, because um, it was it was just one of these brief, courteous conversations, and pleasantries were exchanged, um, and nothing of any consequence. It was all very. A suite, and then she and I walked through St Peter's Square, and all the crowds started to cheer her when they recognised her, and um, that was all very uh, nice. And she went up to see all the couples who were getting married, you know, who all wear bridal clothes. And she said, um, "We did that a long time ago, meaning we got married, and it's a wonderful thing to do." And they were all very. And then I went down, and um, just as she was about to get into the car, I said, "Look, they all want to photograph you." So she said she looked a bit anxious, and she said, "I'll take this thing off," meaning the mantilla she was wearing. Oh right, and. Um, to see the Pope and then I could see she's worried about her hair being disarranged by this and I said you look fantastic that's great and so she did one of those great sort of superstar waves that politicians <laughs> and, and everyone was clapping and delighted and off she went but the point was an hour later she had no memory that she'd seen the Pope but she'd done a great show but anyway on her religion I think she was absolutely uninterested in church questions she respected the church as a social institution um, and she liked the Book of Common Prayer liturgy and the hymns, but she could not be less interested in sort of ecclesiological questions. She thought we'd been infected by socialism as well, didn't she, though, with uh, faith in the city and all that sort of stuff? Yes, but it's quite interesting that she actually engaged probably much more than she needed to with the bishops. She had them to lunch at Chequers. She liked to see Robert Runt, the Archbishop of Canterbury, with whom she'd been at Oxford. Um, and she wanted to have the conversation, and it upset her that the relations weren't as good as they... Because she took them seriously as people. One or two she was got on well, well with politically too, like Graham Leonard, the Bishop of London. But basically, she didn't get on well with them politically, but she was sort of respectful. 
and she wanted, she valued their engagement. But she, um, she was absolutely untroubled by those things that trouble a lot of people, certainly trouble me, is um, about sort of what is the true church and that sort of thing. Couldn't care less about that. It's just, in her view, it's God and God's teaching in the Bible and the good example that Jesus set in the world and how we can all... It's quite a Methodist thing, really, yes. that's that uh, way of yes. looking at things. Yeah, uh, uh, unsacramental. I said to her, she was so unsacramental, that I said to her once, um, I was, we, were, we were both God uh, parents to one of Oliver Letwin's children, and we, they were uh, twins, and they were baptised um, in Trinity College. And she was there, and of course she has twins. And I said to her, um, well, your twins must have been baptised. And she said, very vaguely, she said, Yes, but they didn't have the water. What? <laughs> Which seemed to me... What does that mean? A very... Um, <laughs> suggested to me that she wasn't very <laughs> not aware of the doctrine of baptism. But, uh, they didn't have the water. <laughs> I don't know what she... Perhaps, perhaps Dennis supplied whiskey. I don't know. But, um, uh, <laughs> that doesn't sound like baptism in any sense to me. Exactly. But you see, that's the way it... She, it's that particularly sort of English way of looking at religion as um, certainly profoundly believe in God and believed in Jesus as as God and as a a great teacher, but no real interest in the sort of theology, the um, or mysticism, or do you see what I mean? What about you then? So, where did you? When did? When did you? Um, when did you pope? And what uh, was that all about? I poped in, um, I think, ninety four, but I could easily have done so any time <coughs> from um, university days, really, because I got interested. It was a fairly common thing among um, uh, quite a lot of English people. It'd be to do with people like Newman. And I was exercised, possibly over-exercised, by um, this business of what is the true church. Um, so is this, as some people put it, the society which God intended, I mean the divine society which God intended. Uh, I came to the view that um, the Church of England was not it, but was a, in many ways, admirable, but quite sort of eccentric and in a way limited offshoot of the main thing. And I decided that uh, the Catholic Church was the main thing. And by the way, those two decisions, though related, are separate. I mean, you could easily come to the end of the road with the Church of England. It doesn't automatically mean you become a Catholic, obviously. So, um, and was the ordination of women a part of this? Yes, but not because of the not because of the issue in itself. I have no idea whether or not women could be priests. I can imagine it happening in in time. What it proved to me was that the Church of England was was not true to its claims to be ecumenical. Because if you do believe in Christian unity, you'd want to do you'd want to do this together, even if it meant waiting a long time. And such a decision about the fundamental nature of priesthood ought to be a a decision which Catholics, Orthodox, and Anglicans could agree about. So I felt that what it made me feel that Church of England was in fact the prisoner of liberal liberal secular ideas rather than of really thinking theologically and ecclesiologically and all those things. And you feel at home now in the Catholic Church? Um, I've never used that phrase, actually, because for me, um, becoming a Catholic... Quite a lot of people say when they become Catholics, it feels like coming home. To me, it felt like leaving home because uh, mine was a happy home and Anglican. So culturally, I'm Anglican. You feel you feel culturally Anglican? Yeah. Um, and I'm not culturally Catholic, um, but I'm intellectually and sacramentally Catholic. So I don't feel at home, but I, but I, nor do I feel ill at ease. Also, it has a benefit, which is nothing actually particularly to do with Catholicism in itself, which is that when I was in the Church of England, I got much too engaged in religious dispute, which is an extremely soul-destroying activity. 
as I've studiously avoided getting involved in religious dispute in the Quite Catholic right Church. too, as well. And, uh, yeah. So I am on, on the more conservative side of it. And so if I had to choose, say, between Pope Benedict and Pope Francis, I'd prefer Pope Benedict. But I deplore these sort of violent attacks on Pope uh, 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 Francis. Um, you know, I, I try to, you know, he's the Pope and we'd just better get on with it, just in my view. Um, so... Let's talk about our current situation, Charles, just just to finish mm. off with. Are you a great fan of the Tories at the moment? Uh, no, but I've never been a great fan of the Tories, actually. I've, I'm a Tory, but I've, I'm, I've never liked the Conservative Party. And um, Oh, you must say why. That's really interesting. Well, all political parties are quite dislikable. And I suppose they all have their particular faults. And the Tory one would usually be uh, smugness and inertia. Um and one reason that I do admire Mrs. Thatcher is sort of shaking that up. Um, so I've never thought, you know, gosh, I love the Tory party. Never, That's never crossed my mind. <laughs> um, but I'm very pleased by the fact that Boris is the prime minister because we have at last become a leave. Um, we have at last got a leave government. And it seemed to me that um, a real crisis was created by... Um, I would say rightly empowering voters to decide whether they wish to leave or remain and then refusing to face the consequences of that in legislative terms and governmental terms. And your hostility to the European Union, that goes back a long way. Yes, it does. And perhaps as an element, again, of childhood revolt, because I was brought up very pro-European. And indeed, I would claim to be pro-European in a cultural sense, but not in a political sense. I think it's against British history... Um, and I think it's impossible, even on a wider, you know, the famous thing that's often said is you can't have democracy without a demos, and there isn't, and I don't think foreseeably will be, a European demos. So I just think the reality of the European Union is that it's a bureaucracy and an oligarchy, and it can't be a democracy. And I think Britain worked out better than most continental countries how to be a parliamentary democracy, though our parliament hasn't distinguished itself recently. And... Um, so it's all logical to me, and I've been wanting this for a very long time. I share with you the suspicion of the European Union. I'm glad we're, hopefully, fingers crossed, we're going to leave. But, yeah. uh, I mean, does this cut a little bit? I, I always think part of my uh, hostility to the European Union, as well as being Benite and historically Benite, has something to do with my Protestantism mm -hmm. as a sort of, you know, insurgent sort of, has that insurgent feeling. Mm. And... Most of the Roman Catholics that I know, a lot of Roman Catholics, yes. that they they're much more comfortable with sort of pan-European yes. inheritor of the Holy Roman Empire yes. type of feel. I, I, yeah, I understand that why they, that would be felt for historical reasons, um, and it would be a civilizational feeling as well, wouldn't it? Because it would be this would be a protector of civilization, and I can see why people feel that way. I don't feel that way because I think the Church is profoundly compromised when it tries to attain that political power and or replicate it in modern non-religious structures and you can see it in the a lot of the stuff spooling out about child abuse in the church for example is to do with the fact that the, the church was corrupted um by a privileged position which always happens with everyone in privileged privileged positions so, for example, the independence of the Republic of Ireland 
seen at the time as a great triumph for the Catholic Church, was actually ultimately a disaster for it. Not because Ireland became independent, but because it was given a special place in the sort of governmental order of or the, the state order. And so it became too powerful, and so it came in charge of everything, and so it became corrupt. And so people who'd originally believed in it as their national expression, um, as well as its faith, um, turned against it. And they turned against it much later than most of the rest of Western Europe, and much more violently. And I think this is probably happening in Poland now, um, where Poland's Catholic Church had enormous prestige because it absolute religion of the people and the great bulwark against a Soviet tyranny. And now it's got much too close in with the Law and Justice Party. It's trying to arrogate um, temporal privileges to itself. Sure enough, it's losing vacations. I see that there's 20% down in a year, uh, Polish uh, priestly vacations, which are by far the biggest in Europe. So what that means for us, presumably, is no bishops in the House of Lords for you. Actually, I don't mind about that because um, there's a particular English settlement. All the other things that everyone's come up with to propose for the House of Lords, Lords are worse unless you want a very powerful House of Lords. And I think I probably don't want a very powerful House of Lords because I think, first of all, you have to think what you want the Commons to be. Um, so if we want a fundamentally powerless House of Lords, I don't mind having these dear bishops pottering around. I the Church of England's never going to get as powerful as the Catholic Church is no, in no, no, Poland no, or no, Ireland. No, or no, so. no, so it's just a bit of a softening element. And I respect one thing a lot about Anglican bishops, which is that the they bring something to the party which is that they have their diocese and they therefore are some of the few educated people in this country who are closely bedded into places that have nothing to do with London. I think that's all good and I also think that given we have a monarchy and we have a setup that engages all these things we want to be careful when we pull a thread out of it. So when I hear you talk about the your anxiety about the the priestly class getting too close to the organs of power and mm. not not the separation of church and state. What's going on in the back of my head is actually not really about the Church of England, though it's an obvious thing to ask, but actually about your attitude to the BBC. Yes. Because in a way, <laughs> Quite right, because, there's yes. something more similar there, yes. which is the sort of um, moral guardians, if you like, yeah. and their proximity to the state. And that seems to yes. me, to you, to be a more worrying thing than yes, the Church of England. Yes, and I'm glad you thought of that analogy because it's absolutely right that the the BBC today is like the Church of England in the 19th century and it gets tithes um, uh, because it gets the compulsory um, license fee and so um, and rather like Trollope's um, you know Archdeacon Grant is on 10,000 a year in 1850 or whatever it is um, which is um, uh, 300,000 or half a million or something um, uh, you know the director general of the BBC or the top interviewers, whatever, funnily enough, turn out to get very large subs in the similar way. Um, and with a lot of people defending their virtue as they continue to take the money. And uh, for very similar reasons. And it's not, there's an element of pure hypocrisy in it, but it's also a lot of these people are quite good people. My point is that they're not entitled to have this cultural power over everyone that we're forced to pay for. I'm very happy for them to try to preach their point of view. Lots of them have good things to say, but don't you think you'd be don't you think you'd be um, unhappy if you lost it? I mean, in terms of no, I don't. There's a civilizational no, sort of no, no, force about no. the BBC. That, well, if, uh, if that's true, then that can survive in other forms. Um, I think the BBC does a tremendous harm to um, not only by this, priv this privilege, but also by the narrowing of the way we think about things. 
uh, and it actually does it more than ever because it's become more dictatorial in its um, uh, in its doctrines that come out of the, its program choices and its subject choices and its presenters and so on. So it's trying to create. It says it's trying to reflect. I think the phrase it uses "look like Britain," but actually it's trying to make Britain look like it, and um, and the strain tells um and uh, it, the bbc is has a, bears a lot of responsibility for this fantastic alienation between to use the distinction that gave david goodhart has made um people from anywhere and, and people from somewhere oh. um i think as uh, uh, though the bbc is careful to have its regional coverage it's nevertheless the case that um you have an overwhelmingly metropolitan remainer um uh soft liberal mindset in everything you know i mean who else except for you giles and, and you come from the left who else is on thought for the day is ever allowed to say anything that wouldn't um you know pass the all those smell tests um and the way the arts are presented the way the dramas are done the type of comedy the um uh, this is the last nationalisation that Thatcherites yeah. want to destroy. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> and um, and I think that um, some things like Radio Three are very good, though they're getting worse. Don't you see sort of Fox News? Sorry to interrupt you. Yeah. But don't don't you see the sort of Fox News polarisation of our, our public discourse as being a, a danger of not having something that anchors us, an attempt to anchor us for all the difficulties within the centre? I don't particularly admire Fox News, but I think. Um, I think it's, it is very damaging to have a public doctrine preached when we are forced to pay for it, which we are through the television licence fee. And by the way, it's a poll tax because it, um, it's the same sum for everybody. So it bears very heavily on uh, 15% of all court cases in Britain are licence fee evasion. Um, uh, and I've, I've... Of all court cases? Yes, yeah. you've, been, you've been a licence fee evader, haven't you? I have, yes. Um, uh, what happened? You, you, you got... uh, well, I didn't. I wouldn't. I would claim to be. I would claim not to be an evader, but um, someone who publicly refused to pay. I see. And um, I didn't pretend. I w- um, and so I got taken to the magistrate's court, and I was fined two hundred and fifty pounds plus the um, BBC's costs, which annoyed me. Um, but it's what they call a statutory offence. So no motive is discussed. No dishonesty is alleged. They simply need to establish, did you or did you not pay the fee? And I did not pay the fee. So my argument that it was a human right not to pay the fee um, cut no ice. Yes. I hadn't paid the fee. Right. I had, um, but I was very struck when I appeared in Hastings Magistrates Court by seeing the other people charged with the same offence on the same day who are all, you know, what the Kant phrase is, the most vulnerable in our society. Um, they're all, you know, single mothers who uh, can't make ends meet, the sort of people you meet at, feed, at food banks. And this does bear very heavily on them because um, television is one of the few pleasures they're likely to get in life. And they don't bloody well watch the BBC. So they're they're paying in order to, um, (laughs) um, in order just to have the set, they're paying £154.50 a year, same as you and me, to be preached at. And not surprisingly in the circumstances, they switch, literally switch off. But they still... (laughs) Um, you know, I mean, it's very—it's extraordinary, and it's extraordinary to me how people don't see that it's wrong. You don't mind being preached at? Uh, um, well, only only because I have the freedom to hit back. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand. Charles Moore, thank you. It's been really good to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you, Charles, very much. Great fun. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Confessions with me, Giles Fraser. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do rate and review it. And do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be joined by another guest next week for another episode of Soul Bearing. And I do hope you'll tune in then. And do check out the website, unheard.com. <laughs>